Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's writing brunch is Chaz and Karen Brunchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 157, Scenes from a Latinx Restaurant. With Natalie Molina. Welcome, Natalia. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And I am so grateful that you came and reached out to us. You sent us a copy of your new book, A Place at the, and I would, correct me if I say this wrong, is it Narayit? Yes. Uh, it was fabulous. I really, really loved it. You tell this story. This is a your grandmother's restaurant a little bit. Tell everybody about this book. It's nonfiction and it's fascinating. Thank you. My grandmother immigrated to the U.S. in 1921 at the age of 21. And over the next few decades, she opened a couple of restaurants. But the big one that really hit, she opened in 1951 in Echo Park, Los Angeles, on Sunset Boulevard. What I like to think of as the other Sunset Boulevard, because most of us think about the Sunset Strip and the Sunset of the West Side. But this is in an immigrant neighborhood in the neighborhood of Echo Park. Echo Park is a cultural crossroads, a geographic crossroads. So unlike other immigrants that may have settled in an ethnic enclave, she settled in a multiracial, multiethnic neighborhood, though amongst many immigrants. Um, Echo Park is also unique in that it's a very bohemian neighborhood. It uh, was founded by artists and woodworkers and screenwriters and, uh, you know, was one of its claims to fame is that it um, was the birthplace of one of the first uh, gay organizations in Los Angeles. And so it was a very eclectic mix that she was in. Um, the restaurant itself was unique as well. It was a Mexican restaurant. And like, you know, many Mexican restaurants, it had, you know, taco enchilada kind of combos and flour tortillas. But she also made a concerted effort to have food from her uh, state of Nayarit. Um, that's why the restaurant was named Nayarit. And, you know, she really made a concerted effort to show the re- her regional identity. And this is in 1950s. So this really a political act. This is a time when um, up until 1940, people, uh, lawmakers uh, that were anti-immigrant, anti-Latinx tried to make Mexicans ineligible for citizenship. Uh, They tried to claim their indigenous background. And so, you know, which would have made them not, not white. Pause there for just one moment. (laughs) This was a really, really cool thing to learn. Like I said, I, I loved this because I learned just in that so much about the history of the area that many people who live here and grew up here, because I kind of grew up in the East Side LA version as well, don't realize how many rules, laws, city statutes, et cetera, were all created and wrapped around making and limited communities and where people could live. And so you really unravel that in a new way that I hadn't read before. I geek out over reading law anyway, but that was really, really cool that you pointed out. These were laws that were created by lawmakers, by city, by state, you know, keeping people in, quote, their place. And by white male lawmakers. I just like to point that out. (laughs) 
Yes, indeed. So when you have the Narait and just the fact that it was trying to bring up something beyond the standard American, we call it Tex-Mex of food of, of the local area. Tell us a little bit about what was local for her in that particular area that she's from, the Narait. Well, the state of Nayarit is a coastal state. And so seafood is in abundance. Um, when I was younger and I used to go, when I was growing up, I sometimes kind of felt like uh, the Mexican forest gump. Because, you know, it was like we have <laughs> tacos, shrimp enchilada, shrimp gordita, shrimp soup, shrimp meatballs, um, dried shrimp. You know, all kinds, like 20 kinds of shrimp you could have in your two-week visit to Mexico. Mm. But, you know, of course, at this time period in the 50s and 60s, it's much more difficult to get uh, seafood and shrimp. And so sometimes family visiting, um, friends visiting would bring that uh, dried shrimp, which you could reconstitute um, and make into an appetizer. Other times, you know, if she was able to get um, shrimp or a whole fish, she would make the, this dish called pescado sarandeado, this grilled fish that's done with herbs um, and and grilled. And it's the kind of thing that you would have in Mexico on the beach in uh, in a hut, like, you know, in an open air restaurant. And so there were a lot of things that she would make that when people would get there, they, it was like this transportation home as soon as they took a bite, this kind of portal home, Right. Um, other things she compromised. So, for example, gorditas, those corn um, pockets filled with beans and and meats and lettuce um, and toppings like radish and cotija cheese, not that yellow cheese, but, you know, that nice fresh cheese. And it's bathed in a tomato, uh, really light tomato sauce, almost just like a tomato bath, which is just, you know, chicken broth and tomato and little um, little bits of garlic that are blended together. But since the gorditas were more time consuming, she would make tacos instead, but she would still use that tomato bath. So there were things that she could present authentically and other things that, you know, like so many um, foods, uh, ethnic foods, took on a cultural coalescence being in Los Angeles. Also, you just made our mouths water. I don't know about you guys listening at home, but <laughs> um, 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 hang on. I, I, I have an important question here. I haven't actually looked at your book yet, Natalia. Does it have recipes? <laughs> unfortunately, not, unfortunately, or fortunately not, because I think that's going to be the next book. That's, what I, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, if, if it doesn't, if I mean, if this is the, the book of the story of the restaurant, then you absolutely need to do a companion volume with 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 the recipes, please. And I, I'm going to second that because I will I will get, get full advantage of that book. Um, and also because I do the cooking, he does the cooking, but also I just love shrimp. So, yeah, <laughs> let's uh, let's do it. Absolutely. I, I liked these stories that where you started bringing in the people in particular there because you started talking about, sure, there were some big name Los Angelinos who went there and a lot of people tend to find because L.A. is frankly famous for food in a lot of ways. But I love that you called it the gathering space and a safe space for a lot of different ethnicities as, well, as well as gay and lesbians in the area. And that's that's an interesting concept, which can go sometimes against a little bit of the image of macho. So how did she negotiate that? I think that there was um, a way in 
which her journey as a single woman, so already somebody on the margins, and then someone who decided to settle not in an ethnic enclave where she would have been around more traditional families, more uh, traditional ways of expressing culture, and that she chose to settle in Echo Park because where her restaurant was that predated that, when that lease closed, she could have easily gone two miles east into East Los Angeles and you know been surrounded by more Spanish speakers. She never learned to speak English, more uh, Mexican immigrants, but instead she chose to go two miles west. And that journey two miles west was just as significant as you know her journey from her home state of Mexico, 1,200 miles away. And so, you know, both her mentality and her experience of of knowing what it's like to be on the margins, then being in this ethnic enclave that's more bohemian, more mixed, allowed her to help other immigrants immigrate. And many of those that she invited to immigrate uh, were single women, sometimes divorced women, um, now female headed households, and also gay men. And so they were able to, you know, establish a place at the Nayarit where they felt safe. Um, That being said, there were limits, there were caveats. You know, she's still dealing with the wider structure of homophobia, of not just laws against immigrants, but law and, you know, that tried to keep immigrants in their place, but also that tried to keep the LGBTQ community in their place so that, you know, um, any place that was seen like as a gay establishment could be subject to police raids, which they were. And just, you know, a mile and a half, two miles down the street at the Black Cat was where one of these famous raids happened. And so she also asked her employees not to be, you know, out at work. That being said, their friends would still go to go to their job. You know, maybe before they went out, they'd have a drink. Uh, they went out together in groups. They also went out together in what um, seems like what we call now uh lavender coupling right so um gay men with waitresses from the restaurant who were straight women and so there were a lot of ways in which they quickly found to navigate these laws uh these homophobic laws in the u.s that's cool um how long was the restaurant open i mean you said you said it opened in 51 how long did it last it lasted about 25 years though my grandmother uh, passed in 1969. Along with my grandmother, my mother, Maria, was her right-hand person. So my grandmother was more reserved, ran the business. She did all the cooking until she trained other people. She was very vigilant, making sure that customers were seated, tables were turned over, the food was properly presented. And my mother was the one that greeted you at the door, always had like her hair done, always had a smile on her face. Uh, remembered, you know, the last time you were there and your kids' names and, you know, had follow-up questions, you know, if you had gone on vacation, how was your vacation, that kind of thing. And so they were a great team. And so after my grandmother died, um, it was just much harder for my mom to carry on on her own, as well as getting married and then having me. Uh Um, (laughs) But no, I was was wondering if, yeah, the restaurant sort of crossed from the 60s into the early 70s, whether it became a center of focus for, because this is the period when, you know, sort of the gay liberation people are organizing. And I wondered if it became a focus for that at all. Well, what it became a focus for was um, empowering other immigrants to follow their dreams. 
What? Okay. So cooks and waiters that work there went on to open their own restaurants, including um, Baragans, which was, you know, a beloved Mexican restaurant in Echo Park for years. And my grandmother gave Ramon Baragan the seed money to start that. Um, you know, um, another restaurant, El Chavo, and then Chavo goes on to open a, a restaurant, leaves that restaurant and then goes on to open another restaurant called El Conquistador that lasted into um, this century, mm-hmm. but then closed uh, due to gentrification. Sure. So, you know, El Conquistador and El Chavo were really kind of the, the, the centers for those kinds of politics. Right. OK. I, I, I love the way that one one restaurant sort of fathers or mothers others as the as the staff spreads out and goes elsewhere and starts their own places. I love that. Yeah, and it's such a different time period than now, right? Like they didn't have the kind of capital that is needed to start a restaurant now. I was going to ask about that as well, how your grandmother managed to open several restaurants though. You know, I, I, I mean, I think part of it is, you know, how, how humbly they started. Um, right. and you could start a restaurant that way. It's, it was also a time period where, you know, now everybody wants to go to the latest restaurant and you may have your favorite Italian restaurant, but you go to like 10 other ones that opened up because this one has a great pizza and this one has, you know, this fresh pasta. Whereas at this time period, they had people that went weekly. And as people opened up their own restaurants and my aunt opened up a store called El Bate, a kind of mom and pop market, um, yeah. they frequented each other's businesses. So it was very, it was very, uh, a kind of very neighborhood scene and they yeah, it's, it's community focused. Yes, exactly. And what I call urban anchors. These were the urban anchors of Echo Park uh-huh. and they made sure that they frequented them and they frequented them because they felt at home there. Right. Is this, it feels like a natural work to some of your other books. For instance, Dr. Molina, as you know, you wrote How Race is Made in America, which I think was fantastic on the topic of immigration, citizenship, racial scripts. So how people came to be allowed to come to America, you, you, you're clearly an expert in piling higher and deeper on how it works. But I love that you've kind of focused on your home of Los Angeles in the California area for all of that, because it's it's different in every state, but it is very, very interesting how they pull it here. And you also worked on, I think, Public Health and Race in Los Angeles, 1879 to 1940. Is, is this kind of the natural extension or is this kind of going back and telling that familiar roots of your own story in the context of the greater history you study? I think it's both. Those two books, while they, you know, seem more historical or, you know, more kind of academic less personal, they're still driven by personal questions. So the first book, Fit to be citizens, uh, public health and race in LA is a study of looking at what does science tell us about race? What does public health tell us about race? What is, um, you know, what do doctors tell us about race and how does that shape the urban environment? And it started with just a simple question that, you know, began that I had since I was a little girl watching I Love Lucy. And they made that trek out to Hollywood. And I thought, I want to go to Hollywood. I've never been to Hollywood. I live six miles from Hollywood. I've never been to that Hollywood because that was like this fictional Hollywood. And I would watch movies and say, wow, LA looks so nice. I've never been to that part of LA and realized, oh, it was this like 
L.A. really without people of color that were often depicted in movies and television. And I was really curious as to how I got segregated that way. And my way into that was talking about public health, how they did racial ordinances, zoning ordinances, uh, set up separate clinics for school, for uh, health clinics for Mexicans, set up separate schools for them. And all this was justified based on something objective, right? Public health, science. Um, and then the second book, I was all, I grew up in Echo Park, this multi-ethnic, multiracial neighborhood I've been talking about. And I was always curious that when people talked about African-American studies or Latinx studies or Asian-American studies, that it was, they only talked about those groups. We didn't get to hear about how they interacted with one another. And that had been my experience. And so I came up with this idea of, well, what about if we think about race relationally, how what it means to be Mexican is also shaped by what it means to be white, to be black, to be Asian, to be Native American, and to think about this in this context. And for this book, yes, it's the story of my grandmother, but um, I love the way, Jeannie, that you said, you know, these laws put Mexicans in their place. Mm. And so here I've written this book about the laws, but I was interested in that place Mm -hmm. and also how Mexicans fought back against that and resisted that and also just lived full lives, right? Like, yes, they're laborers. Yes, they're um, in the segmented labor market. But they also go out for a beer after work. They also sing along with the trio. They also put on a nice dress after work. And we don't always get to hear those stories. And I wanted a book that really talked about them as three-dimensional, living three-dimensional lives. I really liked that about it. I mean, you you expect sometimes in in nonfiction books that I have read, some of them are just very dry and this happened and that happened and the other happened. And I loved how you you took us there in a lot of ways. You really drew it so briefly. I felt like I was right there in the early 60s sitting down and look, you had a picture of everybody and they looked they looked like they were about to step out to church and everyone was so carefully dressed as people used to do when they go to dinner. And I think that combination of both the way you describe the people and the way you describe the restaurants and the way you describe the community and added pictures, it made it very living and real for me. And I really enjoyed that about it. Thank you. I appreciate that because what I try to do as a historian is that when I see one of those pictures, I not only have an emotional connection to it, I can tell you why it's unique. Mm. So there's, I'll give you an example. I was already almost done with the book. Um, I think I was pretty much done and it was COVID times. And so, you know, restaurants were closed and it was that first year where we couldn't have Thanksgiving together. You know, most people were meeting just in small groups. And so I went and dropped off meals uh, to different family members, as well as former employees of the Nayeti, who are pretty much what I call fictive kin in the book. Um, you know, a place-based fictive kin. So not kin based on sort of religious ceremonies, but um, being from Echo Park, working together at the restaurant. And when I went to drop it off, uh, one of the former waiters, his name's Boncho um, Garcia, he said, I know you're finishing that book. Could this picture be of any use to you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, so it was... It was um, what it was, was it was uh, Boncho said that 
two waiters, these brothers had come from the state of Zacatecas. They were dishwashers. You know, he's like, they were from a small ranch. They, you know, had only been working in LA. They hadn't gone in LA, really been anywhere in LA. We wanted to show them a good time. So they dressed up. They went to, uh, they crossed town, you know, and if you look at these, redlining maps of Los Angeles from the 1930s that, you know, reflect LA for decades. We think of LA as so segregated. And yet here they were being what I call place takers, learning about these places and going out and they're all dressed up. And it's a kind of photo that you're like, I don't even have a photo like that where you're Aww. like hair and makeup and you're, you know what I mean? Like they're just completely done up in ways that we don't get dressed up to go to restaurants anymore. And it was exactly what I wanted to get at. Here's Boncho, who's a gay man. And, you know, in this space with, um, you know, uh, straight employees, but they're, they have these friendships because we very rarely talk about LGBTQ communities and immigrant communities being the same people. Hmm. Then you also have the ways in which you have these labors. And that's a story we usually get to talk about because there are records, there are union records or labor violation records, but we don't get to see those moments of joy in their life. And they're out and they're not out in an ethnic enclave. They're out in Santa Monica. So I look at that picture and I'm just like, this is unique. And I can write about why it's unique. And hospitality workers as well. I, I don't recall that most of them ever got unionized or organized in that fashion. So it, it, they're sort of the missing link and a lot of them have fallen through kind of the support structures that people assume are there for everybody else. That's a great point. Yeah. I, if I understood correctly, you have donated uh, your 2022 proceeds for, of uh, a place at the Narayit. Tell us about your nonprofit. At the beginning of the pandemic, you know, many of us were wondering how long is this going to go on? You know, we saw people losing their jobs. Um, Other people like myself got to work from home and had job security. And so I was looking for a way to help out. And I heard about this organization, No Us Without You, which is a 5013 charity. And what it does is it provides food relief for those hospitality workers uh, we've been talking about, you know, in, in, in the current period, who have lost their jobs because of the pandemic, may even be undocumented and therefore weren't eligible for the same kinds of relief. And so when people, once I published the book and people were telling me, oh, I love your book. I love talking about restaurant workers. Restaurants are so important. And I'm like, well, if you love restaurants and you love this history of restaurant workers, there's a way you can honor it. We can donate to this organization. So that's when I decided to pair up with them um, and donate the proceeds for this year to that organization. I'll put a link in so that anybody who wants to yep. can reach out because that sounds like an amazing good cause. Absolutely. I, one, one more question going back. Um, do you remember the day you closed the restaurant? No, I was too young. Um, okay. But I do remember things like, you know, how saucy the Chile Colorado was so that you had to like kind of do this cone sort of shape with your tortilla to scoop up the meat and the sauce just properly. Um, I remember going to the restaurant with my mom on the weekends and when she would work late. And so then I would just kind of 
sleep in a booth that was that curved booth. So you kind of had to curve your body to, to get the right, uh, angle. And then I remember when we, when we closed the restaurant at the end of the night, what would we do? We would go to a restaurant. So we might go to the pantry downtown to a 24 hour diner. Um, because that's the other thing, right? Restaurant workers also like to be served and have a good time and enjoy good food. So I have a lot of great memories of the place. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's classic that the, the, the whole family, as in the restaurant family, goes out after after service. Now, I was wondering how sad it was when the restaurant closed, because I've, I've never been to a restaurant closing. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, some, something that clearly is so core to a community. There must have been some, you know, wave of sorrow going on, especially, you know, with the with the, with the workers breaking up. I think one of the reasons that um, I wrote the book also is that, you know, even though the restaurant closed, it doesn't mean that it wasn't an important urban anchor in the community. No, absolutely. And so for decades, decades later, people, if my mom and I would go out to eat, somebody might pick up the tab for her and say, we remember you from the night at eight. We just want to say. Or we might run into one of the former employees and, you know, then they would do things like, oh, let me bring you the special salsa that we make for the Mm. staff to go with your food. Um, And I interviewed this one woman, Cheryl Melnick, uh, who lived there in the 60s, a white couple. And she said that when her and her husband go out to this day, they live in Portland now, that when they go out to this day, and uh, they try a new Mexican restaurant. They say, what do you think? And they're like, it's good, but it's not the Nayari. (laughs) That's wonderful. It is kind of the universal thing, isn't it? In the end, everybody loves sitting around and eating. It brings families together. It brings communities together. It crosses barriers. I've eaten at almost every ethnic restaurant I've ever found just because, oh, I've never had that before. We should go in. (laughs) And I think it creates... Restaurants like that create the opportunity for us to learn even just a little bit and be a little bit more open-minded maybe than people were before. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that because what I really want to do with this book is also show, uh, use it as a model of what other people could do. So there's a lot more food histories being written today. You know, California, where I am, we have this fourth grade curriculum for California history. And it's, you know, students have to do things like, you know, build a mission and, um, you know, try to capture California history that way. I would love for students to, you know, go interview their favorite uh, restaurant owners and staff and customers and, you know, do a history of the neighborhood. I'm actually working on a curriculum for this for K through 12. Um, or map their neighborhood, do a walking tour, do something that really connects them to California through their local history. Because all of us, like you said, all of us love to go to restaurants. We love to sit around and eat, and we love to connect with the specific restaurants that are meaningful to us. We do. We're up in Sunnyvale, and I think this whole podcast started because we all went to the beach yeah. and had coffee every Friday morning. <laughs> And so it became, it's just simply the place to go and the thing to do. And and you see people and, hey, then the mayor started using it for his office. And it 
we became apparently fixtures of just places to go. And being a regular can really do that. So all of you out there that are regulars at a restaurant, you might even not recognize it, but you've become part of your community. You're, you're, you're a pillar, whether you like it or not. <laughs> what are you working on now? I am fortunate to live, live near the Huntington Library. Um, it's the Huntington Library and Botanical Gardens. And so for me, the other thing, you know, as you can tell from this book, I really like hidden histories of L.A. Mm -hmm. The Huntington Library is famous. People come from all over the world to visit its museums and gardens and, and research there. And it's known usually as, you know, Henry Huntington this uh, railroad magnet started the Huntington Library. By, by magnet, and, do we mean robber baron? <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, but I'm really interested in looking at it from the vantage of its Mexican workers. Mm-hmm. So it's a story of who built the Huntington, uh, looking at the ways in which immigrant labor, specifically Mexican labor, fueled the political economy of early California history and how much of that California dream was achieved through immigrant labor? Oh, it was. I'd ran across an article recently on the Stanfords up here yeah. and how Mrs. Stanford did a lot of work to saying, no, I want to nourish and give the Chinese and Japanese a place to live and work here, quietly undertone, because I can pay them less. Yeah, right. Oh, please put a link to that in the notes <laughs> as well. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, no, no. Um, I, my wife has been threatening to take me to the Huntington forever. And, and, and now I really want to go. Well, we appreciate your time. Is there any advice you would give to somebody who said, all right, maybe, maybe I don't want to write fantasy, maybe really researching and writing historical book. How would you tell somebody of where to start to study their own roots, their own communities? What do you think they should do? There are so many wonderful sources out there now. Um, for example, I mentioned the redlining maps. And so even if you're not, stu- even if you don't want to write about your own history, let's say you're, you just want to, um, you're moving into a neighborhood or you want to know about your neighborhood, you can find these homeowners loan corporation maps online. You could look up your zip code, you could look up your neighborhood, and you can pull up how the federal government sent out evaluators in the 1930s to see if your neighborhood was investment worthy. And so, you know, it has all the data on it. Um, You know, the income level, the structures and the racial and ethnic makeup and whether that made it uh, be considered a a, a threat. And unworthy of investment okay um, um we're going to need a link for that <laughs> i really are i'm i'm instant yeah I, I i come from england um we do things differently there um and this just sounds fascinating except and now i want to they did it in england as well just for oh, well, of course we did it in england as well we just did it differently well, we will put links to all of these things mentioned on during the podcast on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. I, I have to say, this has been great. Thank you so much, Dr. Molina. It's so much fun. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. 
Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, milked by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Design, The Bean Scene, and Arm Street over in Ukraine. And hey, thank you for listening. Thank you.